0: this week who'll win the tug of war over Libya's future
1: it is time for Colonel Gaddafi to go and to go now there is no future for Libya that includes him
0: external
2: military intervention should always be the last resort under the UN auspices
3: they love me all my people with me they love me all they will die to to protect me and my my people
0: FBS. Yes, Headlines.
4: The Libyan Air Force has again attacked a rebel-held town in the east of the country. Opposition forces say planes tried to bomb Brega Airport and attacked forces in nearby Ajbiya. Meanwhile, the International Criminal Court has said it will investigate alleged crimes against humanity committed by Colonel Gaddafi and his inner circle. And Downing Street's rejecting claims that Britain is isolated over the idea of a Libyan no-fly zone. The US Defence Secretary warned that would be an act of war. Egypt's Prime Minister has resigned, he'd been appointed by Hosni Mubarak. Before he was forced from office. The inquest into the deaths of the 12 people shot dead by Derek Bird in Cumbria last year has been told he was not facing jail for tax evasion as he feared. His accountant says he owed no more than £25,000. The Culture Secretary has approved Rupert Murdoch's complete takeover of B. That's after he offered to make Sky News independent over fears of his influence on news in Britain. And ministers have approved West Ham's plan to take over the Olympic Stadium after the London Games, but nearby Leighton Orient's still threatening legal action.
0: World leaders couldn't be much clearer on the question of Colonel Gaddafi's future.
1: It is time for Colonel Gaddafi to go, and to go now. There is no future for Libya that includes him.
0: But in Tripoli, that message is not getting through. In fact, in an interview with the BBC's Jeremy Bowen, Gaddafi refused even to admit there'd been protests against him in the capital.
3: No demonstration at all in the street. Did you see demonstrations?
0: Uh, yes, I have, yes. Where? I saw some,
3: some today. I saw Where? some in Zawiya yesterday, I saw demonstrations. Ali supporting us?
4: No, they're not supporting
3: they you. They are not against us. Some some were against you and some were for no, you. No, no one against us. Against me for what? Because I am not president. They love me, all my people with me. They love me all. They they will die to to protect me, my my people.
0: Libyan assets have been frozen around the world. US Navy warships are being repositioned, and David Cameron has suggested Britain could play a leading role in enforcing a no-fly zone over Libya. Former Prime Minister Sir John Major was in power when similar rules were imposed on Iraq. He's warning those considering military intervention to tread carefully.
2: External military intervention should always be the last resort. And if it's necessary, I think we have seen over the last few years that it is very desirable indeed that it uh, enters under clear and indisputable international law under the UN auspices.
0: Oliver Miles is a former British ambassador to Libya and he's on the line. Uh, Oliver Miles, thanks for your time today. Uh, We heard strong rhetoric from David Cameron at the start of the week about no-fly zones. How likely is military intervention now?
2: Now, I think it's not likely at all. Uh, Of course... You can never tell the future, and particularly uh, Gaddafi himself is a a particularly difficult man to read. But right now, I think there's really no case for it.
0: Venezuela's president, Hugo Chavez, is trying to broker a diplomatic solution. Do you think he can negotiate an end to this crisis?
2: No. uh, I don't think that any foreigner is likely to be able to play uh, a useful role possibly another Arab, the Arab League, I suppose one could imagine. But I think it's got to be something sorted out by the Libyans themselves.
0: So do you think a prolonged civil war is inevitable then?
2: No, no, I don't think that at all. And I think to call what uh, is happening at the moment civil war is something of an exaggeration. It's true that Libyans are fighting Libyans, but not on a very large scale. I think it's, uh, uh, it's a deadlock. Uh, the fact is that for the last 10 days or so, there's been a and even before that, outside Tripoli, but I'm thinking of the capital, Tripoli itself. The last 10 days or so, there's been a confrontation between pro and Gaddafi elements. Uh, you could call that deadlock, but it hasn't been entirely deadlocked because during that period, the support for Gaddafi has been ebbing away. Uh, quite important, uh, uh, significant people like members of his family, one or two military commanders. Of course, we've all heard that two, um, two military pilots took off to, to Malta with their aircraft, apparently because they weren't prepared to bomb their own people. Um, so it's not quite deadlock. And then yesterday, um, although it wasn't a, a huge campaign, uh, there was a certain amount of, of razzmatazz and some pro-Gaddafi elements set off to, ca- to take back towns and villages which had been, had been captured, if you like, by the, by the rebels. Uh, and they seem to have failed by and large. So it's not a complete deadlock.
0: So you're saying that civil war isn't inevitable then. What, what do you think might happen?
2: Well, I think that Gaddafi might go. I think that his his support, uh, is, as I say, is, is eroding. It's not decisively eroded yet, and it might be that he can hold on. But if, if you want me to, to make, a, make a, a speculation, if you like, or a bet, I would say that uh, his support will ever weigh, and he'll have to go.
0: Why do you think David Cameron in all of this has been so overt on his comments on Libya, talking about no-fly zones so strongly at the beginning of the week and also about arming the p- p- opposition?
2: Well, I must say I think it was a mistake. I, I accept and agree with uh, what he said, that, which is that we should be prepared for anything, if you like. Uh, military planning is, is, uh, is n- never out of place for any contingency, but I think to have talked public, uh, publicly about it... Was a mistake because there are was it as
0: simple as that? Was it just a simple, naive mistake? Do you think? No, no, I
2: don't think it's a simple, naive mistake. I think, um, I mean, I'm not gonna, going to get into the the, uh, the, the the British politics of it, but clearly he was under some pressure because of the perception, whether it was justified or not, as another matter. That the civilian evacuation hadn't gone well, that Britain was behind the game on that, and he wanted to show that he was um, he was up there, um, up, up front, so to speak. But I think it was a pity he chose the military side to emphasise.
0: Do you think the solution uh, to the problem in Libya at the moment and the crisis lies within the country alone?
2: Yes, I do. I think that it's rather unlikely that uh, foreign intervention would do good and quite possible that it would do harm. When I say foreign inter- intervention, um, the, the intervention to, to rescue or bring out um, civilian um, civil expats uh, in, in Libya was was justified, I think, and, and seems to have been more or less successful. I'd just like to make the point that that's been presented in the British media as though it was a British operation to rescue British people. It wasn't really like that. It was an international operation to rescue an international community of oil men who were, had the special problem, the unusual problem, that they were scattered all over the Sahara Desert in very small numbers here uh, in, in a large number of, of remote uh, areas. Many of them probably have stayed behind, but I think those who want to leave have probably had the opportunity to
5: leave.
0: All right, Oliver Miles, stay with us. And, and of course, our forces are among those who have been on Libyan soil, rescuing hundreds of foreigners as the chaos deepens. HMS Cumberland made two trips to Benghazi, while others were picked up from the desert by the RAF's Hercules fleet. Five flights, which also involved special forces. Mike O'Donoghue was one of the Britons flown out of Libya.
5: They were overrun by local uh, criminal militia and they were coming on site with uh, guns and knives and intimidating and threatening. And
0: what do you think of the special forces' operation?
5: They're magic people. They're the best in the world. You know, we owe them perhaps our lives. We don't know, but they were certainly risking theirs. Well, when we got onto the plane, there was two locals attacked the plane with with large knives or machetes to try and rip the tyres. And the the special forces charged them, told them to stop and somebody tackled them, brought these guys down took them back.
0: While those rescue operations were a success, more direct military intervention would be a far more complex operation. Oliver Miles is still with me, and I'm joined in the studio by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Hello. The US Defence Secretary, Robert Gates, appears to have poured cold water on the idea of a no-fly zone over Libya, calling it an act of war. Why are the Americans taking a much more cautious line than the British did at the beginning?
5: I think... Because you've got a different style in in Washington at the moment, and also uh, there's something else that keeps bothering me about all this, and that is that you read in newspapers, commentators, and people in government, ex-government people, talking about the Western response, the response of the West. This is this is wrong. I mean, it's it's that terminology that we use to sort of say, well, we know right, we know whether you should have democracy or not. You see, the Americans look at it this way. If you want to have, for example, a no-fly zone, what do you got to go? do at the beginning? You've got to knock out the uh, radar acquisition uh, systems. You've got to knock out all the ground-based radar. You've then got to get so-called air superiority. You then have to have... Uh, uh, air supremacy, then you can actually do a, a, a no-fly zone. To what purpose? The other part of it, you then start to interfere in somebody else's problem militarily, which I think Iraq, uh, Afghanistan makes it very cautious operation for the Americans. And that is why the Americans are actually saying, well, you know, let's just hang back because if anybody's going to get involved in this, it's going to have to be us. And that is not a very good thing.
0: Also in the studio with me is Professor Eric Grove, Director of the Centre for International Security and War Studies at Salford University. Hello to you, Eric. Hello. Um, how do you see this crisis playing out over the coming days? Well,
1: I think it all depends what happens on the ground. I mean, uh, uh, as we've heard earlier, the, the problem is, has to be solved internally, really. And I, th- and I think it'll be interesting to see how elements within the armed forces decide the best way forward should be. Perhaps the most benign solution would be if it appeared to Gaddafi that he'd lost so much support that uh, he really had basically a choice either he stays and goes down fighting which might be attractive to him or he tries to find some bolt hole somewhere else.
0: Uh, Oliver Miles briefly if you were advising Downing Street at the moment what would you be saying to them?
2: Well I think uh, what the Prime Minister we heard at the beginning was saying was right that the best thing for him to do is to go and to go as soon as possible so that the bloodshed comes to an end. I, I must just point out here that that Already we've made the situation more difficult, actually, by what we've, we've done in the United Nations. We went to the Security Council, which was the right thing to do. The Security Council passed a resolution immediately, which was commendable. But what did it actually say? It said all the countries in the United Nations are supposed to deny access to Gaddafi and members of his family. And if they do come into their territory, they're supposed to indict them before the International Criminal Court. Well, that's hardly going to encourage him to do what the Prime Minister suggested, which is to leave.
0: All right, Oliver Miles, former British ambassador to Libya. Thanks for your time today. Um, Eric Grove, you signed a letter to the Prime Minister recently warning the cuts announced in the Defence Review should be re-evaluated. H- how have your concerns been heightened, or have they, by what's happening in Very Libya? much
1: so. They've been confirmed, in fact. I mean, my main problem with the SDSR when it first came out was that it said that we need to respond to the unexpected, but yet we took out of service and have taken out of service exactly those forces that were best designed to respond to the unexpected, as I said in a recent press article. The first thing in American but press. But so
0: far, what's our operations so far? Have they been affected by the defence view? Not well, exactly I mean, I they- think
1: that I think that shall we say the options that were potentially available have been reduced. Um, we might, in other circumstances, have possibly deployed Ark Royal into the area, which would have given us options. The Americans have deployed one of their landing ships, the Ponche. They've deployed one of their flat-top ships, not very different from Ark Royal in some ways, Uh, the Cassage, which can operate Harriers too. They've got various options, therefore. They say they're there for humanitarian purposes. If things go badly wrong, we could have said the same. We still actually have some flat-top ships that, that we could have deployed. But these operations we had with the Hercules were very dangerous. They were very risky. The special forces were able to prevent opposition. But if, for example, the opposition had been greater, if the situation had been less benign, we had no capacity to give aerial support to those missions. They were extremely risky and riskier than they perhaps need have been.
0: Well, while talking up the prospect of military action in Libya, at the same time, the MOD's been setting out the first round of job cuts linked to the Strategic Defence and Security Review, and they've admitted some of those returning from Afghanistan next month could lose their jobs in the autumn. The RAF's cutting more than 2,500 posts, disbanding tornado squadrons at Lossiemouth and Marham. Jim Murphy is the Shadow Defence Secretary.
5: It's remarkable that in the week when the Prime Minister and the government are talking about establishing a no-fly zone over Libya, amid all the turmoil that's happening there, they now turn their attention to our own RAF and sack so many trainee pilots. Now, while they wouldn't be deployed over Libya, of course, if the no-fly zone ever happened, these are the remarkable men and women who would be expected to enforce any future no-fly zones um, in hotspots across the globe.
0: Christopher, the Prime Minister said he'd protect frontline operations in Afghanistan. Does this amount to a broken promise?
5: No, it's not a broken promise. It's, I mean, it's a remarkable... If you go in Whitehall and you go and talk to people, as I do, around you know, the Cabinet Office and MOD and um, other places, you realise there's an astonishing amount of incompetence. This is the decade, almost, of incompetence in making decisions. So it's just a mistake
0: saying that anyone currently serving in Afghanistan wouldn't be facing redundancy, was it?
5: It's, it's inept. It, I- it is utterly inept the way that it has been handled. Like the whole, all these statements that have come out about Libya, inept. It, st- stupid on part of the Foreign Office and on Downing Street. They should have been easier. They should have been more laid back. They should have thought what they were saying. Badly advised, badly advised indeed. Do you remember um, that what they were saying originally about uh, you mustn't send emails to people who are going to be going to be made redundant, it sort of rates with that, what's going on at the moment.
0: Christopher, Eric, stay with us. SITREP with KJB. Still to come this week, a career change for veterans from the front line to the classroom.
1: Very rewarding job when you see a student, you know, start with a student in September who will hardly make eye contact with you when they finish the course. They've got A handful of qualifications that they can take to employers, the change in them is, is, is miraculous.
0: The events in Libya aren't just being watched closely in London and Washington, but in Beijing and Tehran. They're attracting a different kind of attention. China and Iran have both moved to try to stop any repeat of the protests that have already forced out Tunisia's President Ben Ali and Egypt's Hosni Mubarak, and now threaten Colonel Gaddafi. Earlier I spoke to Steve Crawshaw from Amnesty International.
6: What we've seen is a series of um, arrests in uh, China, for example, there have been more than a hundred activists have been um, detained or placed under surveillance um, in the in the past month, um, and clearly arrests are happening the whole time. But there's no question that there is an increased sensitivity, an increased worry that people will look elsewhere in the world and say, "Well, we also demand some basic rights." In Iran, uh, some of the main um, opposition leaders, Mir Hossein Mousavi, Mr. Karoubi, two of the, of the key players there, um, from, including from uh, the disputed elections of 2009. There were reports which are very contested. We had heard they originally had been taken away and disappeared. Then they claimed they were merely under house arrest. That is going back and forth. But again, we're seeing that Iran is very unsettled, is reacting not by opening up, But by trying to close down, that is, of course, completely unacceptable.
0: Now, the UN has referred Libya to the International Criminal Court over the deaths of civilians. What kind of implications does that have elsewhere, do you think?
6: Crucially, it also opens up possible referrals in the future where it has seen the Security Council will be very reluctant to repeat what it did in 2005 when it referred the case of Sudan, of Darfur and Western Sudan, to the court. And we are very much hoping that what one might call the unevenness of justice, the fact that governments pick and choose who they want to be held to account, that maybe that can finally begin to change.
0: And what kind of effect do you think the UN's referral of Libya to the International Criminal Court could have on Afghanistan?
6: In Afghanistan, of course, where a huge number of civilians have died, clearly in breach of, of international law, above all, uh, we have seen very clearly that the Taliban have been responsible for a very large number of civilians.
0: And, and from that, British forces currently on operations there should have really nothing to worry about.
6: Let me put it this way: I would hope they would have nothing to worry about. I mean, it, it is not, of course, that this gives carte blanche; it does not. So In other words, if we see a, uh, a a lack of care for civilian life, of course, that has certain implications at the end at the end of the road. Major forces. Um, have, and therefore including British forces, have clearly been taking greater precautions um, than was previously the case. No one questions the challenges that are there, but the fact is the protection of civilian life is crucial, both in legal terms plus also, of course, in practical terms of, of, of keeping the hearts and minds of the population.
0: Steve Crawshaw from Amnesty International. Staying with Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai has been in Britain this week meeting the Prime Minister at Downing Street. And while David Cameron again confirmed he wants our combat role in the country to end in 2015, he's insisted Britain will remain closely involved in Afghanistan's future.
1: Beyond 2015, Britain and Afghanistan will continue to have a very strong relationship, a relationship based on diplomacy, on trade, on aid, on development, on military training, above all on friendship, because Britain is an all-weather friend, not a fair-weather friend to Afghanistan.
0: But a committee of MPs is warning there are risks in the Prime Minister's exit strategy. Richard Ottaway chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee.
5: There's no doubt about it. There have been great tactical successes um, in the South, but across Afghanistan as a whole, the situation remains very precarious indeed. And we think that actually it is time to get on with the political process because... With the deadline set, with every day that you're fighting, you're not talking. And we don't think that's in anybody's interest.
0: Well, Christopher Lee is still with me, as is Professor Eric Grove. Uh, Christopher, let's just go across the border to Pakistan, because we've had the assassination this week of Shabazz Bhatti, a minister in the country's government who's opposed Pakistan's hardline blasphemy laws. Um, How could that impact on operations in Afghanistan?
5: Uh, Shabazz Bhatti uh, was a, a Roman Catholic. He was the minister responsible for trying to bring every, everybody together. The, uh, what he opposed in, or what he wanted and a lot of other people wanted, the blasphemy laws at the moment say, if you apparently blaspheme Islam, then you will suffer death penalty. He and a lot of other people were saying, we're not against the blasphemy laws, you shouldn't do that anyway, but please do not execute people. The fact that he was executed by Taliban they claim to have executed him, shows the weakness of the government yet again, because this is a second killing, similar killing uh, this year uh, already. Um, the, Af- uh, the Pakistan government is vulnerable. The army is trying to take control. In fact, is running as best it can the corrupt government of Pakistan. The intelligence services are backing Taliban. You cannot get a solution in Afghanistan without Pakistan. If Pakistan is in no condition to assist in that...
0: We're just going to be there for longer, is that what you're saying?
5: It could be that the 2014 deadline for pulling out of combat troops, it is fudged in such a way as that people start coming out, but there will be troops left who will have a combat role. And I think that, you know, basically thinking about what does this mean for British forces, Mm. it means that there may still be... What David Cameron says, we're a fair weather, fat friend. No, we are a true friend of Afghanistan. We will leave people there in training roles. That training role could turn into a combat role, even if they have to rewrite the terms of reference, and that's what they're planning to do at the moment.
1: Eric Grove. Yeah, Pakistan is effectively going down the tubes. It is becoming a country that is dominated by Taliban and extremist forces, and the government is just, it just finds it impossible to do anything against it. We have lessons in the past that if you have a pro-insurgent government over a border, putting down an insurgency is extremely difficult, if not impossible. So with Pakistan becoming increasingly radicalised, it's going to be extremely difficult for the insurgency in Afghanistan, to be sufficiently stabilised that a withdrawal, I agree with Chris, a withdrawal of the kind that we still seem to be talking about will be possible.
0: Right, thank you. Stay with us. Could military veterans make a difference in some of our toughest inner city schools? The government thinks so, which is why it's investing in a £1.5 million in three projects to turn former service personnel into mentors for school kids. It's based on a similar and highly successful programme, Troops to Teachers in the United States. Tim Marsden spent 36 years in the RAF. For the last five years, he's been working in the classroom.
2: I'm from a a Bernardo's boy who came from from that background. I think you understand some of their frustrations and and perhaps you have a a little bit,
5: as I said, a bit of empathy with where they are.
0: At present, it's estimated there are 16,000 children under the age of 16 who are outside the school system. Nick Gibb is the school's minister.
7: Forces personnel have many of the virtues that we need in our schools. They have a sense of discipline. They have a sense of purpose and a belief in teamwork, and that's how the forces work, through teamwork. And it's those values and skills that we want to see in our schools. So for us, it's a, it's a great opportunity to encourage more um, formal personnel into schools to raise standards of behaviour.
0: And what are the qualities in particular you're most interested in? Is it the leadership or is it just the old-fashioned military discipline?
7: No, he's leadership, but but an element of discipline, and uh, the experience in the United States is that uh, former troops can instill discipline in a classroom by raising an eyebrow, by a quiet word. Uh, so they have instinctive skills of instilling discipline and self-discipline amongst young people that they have learnt to develop as they train their own troops in their former careers, and it's that skill and, and those virtues that we want to see in our schools also Um, They provide good role models, particularly for boys, and in the States, the Troops to Teachers scheme, 82% of those that did come into teaching from the forces uh, were male, and that compares with the traditional route into teaching, where only 18% are male. So it's a good way of achieving more good role models for boys, particularly those from uh, more disadvantaged backgrounds.
0: What about the knowledge of specific subjects? Because a lot of teachers now would argue that the education is really the important thing.
7: Well, the troops to teachers scheme that we'll be saying more about uh, in the next few weeks. For those that uh, uh, leave the armed forces without a degree, we're going to have a, uh, a, a, a fast track uh, scheme with financial subsidies to enable Uh, those potential future teachers to obtain a degree and to acquire qualified teacher status and we'll have a fast track scheme also for graduates. So for those that want to do more than mentor students and the the, the £1.5 million scheme you spoke about is about mentoring but for those that want to continue on uh, and to become teachers then there will be these fast track routes to get a degree and to acquire qualified teacher status.
0: The teaching profession will look attractive to someone who's about to lose a job in the forces because of spending cuts. How are you going to make sure you get the right kind of people and that they're motivated to stay?
7: No, they'll all have to go through a very careful recruitment process. Uh, and we want the very best, and we want those that have the empathy and ability to work with children and young people. Uh, so there will be a screening process and a recruitment process. But I'm, sh- I'm confident that there will be a lot of former Uh, forces personnel who will have those uh, those virtues
0: In the US more than 16,000 former servicemen and women have retrained as teachers how many would you like to see in British classrooms?
7: Well we have to start small and and build up, we'll be announcing further details in the next few weeks about the quantum and the numbers that we want to see in our schools. Uh, the mentoring programme is a smaller programme. We're starting it off as a pilot, so we're, we're looking at uh, uh, you know hundreds rather than thousands. But in due course, over time, we do want to see this scheme be, be a major route into teaching. Uh, and what we're trying to do generally with teacher recruitment is to widen the intake so we have a more diverse uh, entry into teaching from from people who have had successful careers, not just in the forces, but in other areas of uh, of, of work and life.
0: The Schools Minister, Nick Gibb, speaking to me earlier. Danny Fitzsimons is in an Iraqi prison cell, a former British soldier jailed for 20 years for murdering two men. Within 36 hours of arriving in the country to work for a private security firm, Fitzsimons killed former Royal Marine Paul McGuigan and Australian Darren Hoare. Fitzsimons claimed to have acted in self-defence and said he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after harrowing experiences in both Iraq and Kosovo. Well on the line is Andy Bearpark of the British Association of Private Security Companies. Thanks for your time Andy. Um, Armour Group admitted Danny Fitzsimons wasn't properly screened before employing him but also accuses him of lying to them during the recruitment process. What kind of safeguards are in place to spot people who shouldn't be working in private security companies?
3: Good companies have, have procedures, they have vetting procedures, they have screening procedures. Um, bad companies, of course, don't. So I'm not suggesting Armour Group are a bad company for one second. But, but the problem is, however good your procedures are, people can slip through the net. And, and, and that's the awful reality of the world. In other industries, it happens, but you don't see the consequences. Unfortunately, in the security industry, when people have guns, you do see the consequences. Very tragic.
0: Within the military, there are support networks set up to deal with the kind of problems that arise, perhaps post-traumatic stress disorder. Is the private sector properly equipped to help, do you think? The
3: short answer is no, but it's moving in the right direction. Five years ago, the security industry didn't even recognize PTSD. There have been a number of Project since then, which the British Association has been proud to be involved in, which has been introducing things which are well known in the military into the industry. And so progress is being made, but it's a journey, and we're not at the end of the journey yet.
0: All right, Andy Bearpark, thanks for joining us. Um, <laughs> Professor Eric Grove, if you're hiring ex-service personnel, you'll inevitably come across people who've witnessed horrifying things. Don't you need better ways to spot the signs of post-traumatic stress disorder or people who are simply not suitable for the work? That's right. I mean
1: it's difficult. I mean in the past of course we didn't recognise PTSD really you know there was a stress and we seem now perhaps bringing people back quite rapidly from a a wartime situation where horrible things happen into a a more civilian type of situation that contrast helps helps sort of create it. And I think in a way we're learning as we go on because I think the, the is very much a developing thing because of this brief w- war experience then coming back to a more normal type of environment. I think this p- sets up a particular kind of stress which I'm not sure that we're totally au fait with as yet.
0: Christopher?
1: We've had
5: three major wars since uh, 1991, uh, more recently 2003 Iraq and then Afghanistan. I think it's quite remarkable the few incidents that we're talking about now that have actually happened. But don't forget the military themselves aren't good at handling this sort of thing. And certainly the, the private uh, secure, se- uh, security systems have never been so big. You can't go to Afghanistan, you can't go to Iraq, even today, without your minders. Not everybody who gets signed on should have been signed on in the first place. But I emphasize, not that many go wonky.
0: All right. Christopher Lee Professor Eric Grove thank you very much for your time today if you want to get in touch with us our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com we'd love to hear from you and don't forget you can sign up for the weekly sitrep podcast so you need never miss the program again until next time from me Kate Chabo, thanks for listening and goodbye
7: this is sitrep on bfbs